Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. The overarching theme of the Gospel of John is believing. Several sub-themes will contribute to it. In chapter 1, the author introduced the themes of the divine identity of Christ and of witness. In chapter 2, he will introduce the theme of signs. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Before we get into it, I want to remind you of the purpose of the writing of the Gospel of John as described by the Gospel writer himself, who in chapter 20, verse 31 said, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. His purpose is not primarily to give us information that we don't have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is to point us to faith in Him, to show us who He really is so that we might believe in Him. So he continues that, that he started in chapter 1, and he begins in chapter 2 with the words, On the third day. That refers to the third day after the last day that is spoken of in uh, chapter 1. That was the day in which uh, uh, Philip brought Nathanael to Jesus. And Jesus spoke to Nathanael with some words that Jesus spoke to him about himself. He decided, you are truly, you are the... uh, uh, you are the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus, I think, with a little bit of a chuckle, said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. In chapter 2, we're going to begin to see some greater things than these. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor poor wine, but You've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. All right, so we've got this story of the wedding at Cana and the miracle of the turning of water into wine. Very famous passage. It is quoted in just about every wedding ceremony that I've been to, every Christian wedding ceremony that I've been to. 
with the statement that by attending this, Jesus blessed marriage and the institution of marriage and blessed the well. Yes, he did, but that's not the point and purpose of this passage. There are so many things that we import into this. Let's just see if we can just draw out from this and try to keep our own importation of it to a minimum, shall we? Let's see what really is here because the point and for all of this is bringing us to this point. He is manifesting his glory. How is he manifesting his glory in what just took place here? They're at this wedding, and weddings are a multi-day affair that involve people not only from the local community, but from surrounding communities. Cana is, not, is a town nearby to Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. And Mary's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and by the way, she's not named here, she's simply called the mother of Jesus, uh, is an attendee. Jesus also is an attendee, and he and they said, bring your disciples, sure, come on. Well, whether they had more people that came than what they had planned for, or just the people who were coming drank more than what they thought that they would, for whatever reason, they ran out of wine. Now, this is more than a small social embarrassment. This is a major issue that would have gone against the rules of hospitality of that time. It would have been a tremendous shame for the, for the bridegroom of that family to start out this marriage running out of something critical to a celebration. Because as, as in Jewish tradition, as the rabbis talked about it, <laughs> if there's no wine, there's no joy. And that's just the way, and by the way, the drinking habits of, of the people of that time, it was not about intoxication. Uh, as a matter of fact, the wine was always diluted. Uh, it was never served full It wasn't even served full strength by the Romans, let alone by the Jews. Uh, according to the Talmud, the, uh, the uh, ratio of mixture was three parts water to one part wine. Even the children drank the wine. Uh, in this, it was not about intoxication, but it was all about the celebration, and it was just part of, of that whole thing. And to run out of wine would have been just a catastrophe. For whatever reason, we don't really know why, but Jesus' mother believed that she had to come up with a solution for this, and so she went and spoke to her son. And the statement they have no wine is more than a statement of fact, it implies. A request to do something. Now we don't know what had predicated this, what had preceded this in the uh, in the life of Jesus before this time. Jesus before this time has has not had a public ministry. Uh, he has not had a ministry. He has basically been with his family in Nazareth. His mother comes to him and says. They need something. I don't believe that Jesus was performing miracles willy-nilly throughout his childhood. I don't think it was one of those things. But I do believe that his mother had seen and noticed that Jesus had a very special relationship with God. That he regarded God as his father. And 
that when Jesus prayed, things happened. I think she knew that much. And so with this in mind, I think she believed that Jesus had something that could be done. Jesus' response to her is what has brought up a lot of discussion, much more than her question. When he says to her, not mother, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time, my hour has not yet come. First of all, the, the way he addressed her, he does not call her mother, he calls her woman. Now, he's not being rude. That's not a rude statement in that. The New International Version tries to soften that with, by adding dear woman, but that does not show up in there. There's no, there's no diminutive there. There's nothing in there that softens it. it. It's not as harsh in that language as it sounds to us, but it's very much along the line of he's saying, ma'am or madam, this is not my business. He is very clearly making a, dis a distance between himself and his mother. Whatever their relationship may have been up until this time, it has changed. It is not a relationship of son to mother. He is relating to her as a man to a woman in his culture. And she does not have a special privilege to ask him simply because she is the one who gave him birth. Not at this point. Because right now, his directions do not come from his mother. They come from his heavenly father. This is something that's, I'm not reading something into this passage. This is something that's going to be displayed as we move on into the Gospels. I'm just saying, bear with me until we get there. But he says, what does this have to do with me? This is very clearly a statement of something that is going to show up much more uh, in the, further in the Gospel. My hour has not yet come. There is much that John has to say about the hour. Hour has a, is a whole lot more than about a particular time. Hour has to do with purpose. There is a plan. There is a purpose. God has set forth a plan and purpose. God has predestined a plan and purpose for Jesus' life and ministry. And the time for doing something that is an overt sign of who He is hasn't yet come. But she goes on and she, she does not take that as a rebuke. She does not take that as a refusal. She takes that, however, with some submission. And she goes to the servants and she said, whatever he says to do, do it. So, it's now up to him whether he wants to do anything or not. What does he do? So he speaks to them. He spots the stone jars of water. There are six of them. They are there to hold water for ceremonial purposes. They're made of hollowed out stone. They're not made of pottery, which is porous, which would uh, 
possibly subject them to conditions which would make them ceremonially unclean. This is for ceremonial washing. It's not for hygiene. It's for ceremonial washing and for, for taking water out of these pitchers and pouring them on the hands of those who are being served so that they can be ceremonially clean and eat with ceremonially, ceremonial cleanness. And so all of this is done for that reason. So they've got these jars, huge jars. They're, they care, hold about 20 to 30 gallons of our measurements in each jar. So Jesus tells the servants, go and fill them to the brim. If they're not, if they're not full, fill them up. If they're empty, fill them up. It kind of reminds me of when Elijah told servants of the king to fill up jars uh, of water and then pour them on the altar. Well, in this case, he says, fill these jars up with water. So they fill them up with water. He says, now, serve it. Give it to the master of the feast. Serve it. The master of the feast is the is the kind. It's kind of comparable to what the wedding planner might be in uh, in our society. He's the guy who's in charge of of making sure he's in charge of the festivities, making sure that the food gets put out, that uh, accommodations are taken care of, that you know, all, all of these things. So he's he's just in charge of managing all of this. He tastes the wine. He says, he goes to the bridegroom and says. What's the deal, man? So everybody, every wedding that I've ever worked has you, you, you bring out the good wine first, and then when everybody's pretty much drunk their fill, then, then that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. You've saved the best until last. What's the deal? Again, it's not that everybody's going and getting drunk. It's, it's the idea they recognized quality when they tasted it. And this was the best. This was the best. The Lord, <laughs> when the Lord does it, He does it the best. Charles Spurgeon made this comment on it. Jesus Christ com convinced the gospel dispensation not with a miracle of vengeance like that of Moses who turned water into blood, but with a miracle of liberality, turning water into wine. He does not only supply necessaries, but gives luxuries. Well, who saw this miracle? Who saw it? Who knew what was going on? Besides Jesus, of course, and besides Mary. The servants who served it and the disciples who watched it. It was not done publicly. It was not done overtly. And therefore, Jesus still, he is staying within the parameters that he set forth. His hour had not yet come. He, this, is not, this is not his business. He didn't come in order to, to, he didn't come just to be your personal problem solver. And nevertheless, he does this out of grace. Of his goodness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It is, he is showing his first sign, his first miracle, is a miracle of grace and changing the ordinary into extraordinary. It was the first of his signs. John's going to end up pointing out to us seven signs, that is, seven miracles that Jesus works. And it's, it's, it's 
important that he uses the word sign. He doesn't use the word miracle. The word miracle, the Greek word is dunamis, means a work of power. That's the word that's primarily used in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are, they're acts of power. But John uses the word sign. What's the difference between dunamis, power, and samaya, sign? Dunamis, a work of power, makes an impression. But a sign points in a direction. And for John, it's not merely the, the power that is important here. It is what, the, what that work of power has to say. It points in a certain direction. And Jesus' disciples saw it, and they believed in him because it says he manifested his glory. Nobody saw it but them. But they did see it, and they believed. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. His mother, his brothers, who are his brothers? In Mark chapter 6, their name, let's see, we've got James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And it also says he had sisters. It speaks that in Mark chapter 6. Who are they? Well, they are the, uh, the most straightforward, ordinary, uh, sensible explanation for this is that they are the sons of Mary and Joseph. Sometime in the second century, there arose a belief that Mary, Mary needed to have been a virgin all of her life. And so, who were these brothers and who was this family, the brethren of Jesus? Well, they must have been the children of Joseph by a previous marriage. And so that idea came up. But that's nowhere in the scriptures. That's not found anywhere in scriptures. The, the, uh, um, the most simple, straightforward explanation for this is that they were simply the children of Mary and Joseph. And... Uh, so we would call them Jesus' half-brothers because we know that Jesus was begotten not of Joseph nor of any man, but of the Spirit of God. So they went to Capernaum, which is a town on the Sea of Galilee. Archaeologists believe that they have found that place. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have, in the last couple of years have found a site that they believe may have been the home of Simon Peter, where Jesus himself stayed. But I'm just just a feature, it moves on. John wants us to know these are real places, this is real, these are real events, they actually took place. And so then verse 13, it goes on, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. You know, the interesting thing is that the sun is getting ready to set, and when the sun sets, it's going to be the Passover on this day that I'm making this uh, uh, this tape. Um, that day the Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So, we see, we have seen, first of all, the sign that Jesus has shown that he is the 
the Christ, the Son of God. Now he is going, he has just shown us a work of authority that demonstrates that he is the Christ, the Son of God. This is a messianic act. He is coming in and he is taking over his father's house and cleansing it of having become a marketplace. The problem is not what they were doing. People from outside, from out of town, needed to come and they, they couldn't drag their animals with them to sacrifice. They needed to purchase animals there and they needed to use money that could be exchanged in the temple precincts. So money changers had to be there. Sellers of animals and birds for sacrifice needed to be in that place. But where they were setting up was in the temple grounds. They weren't setting up in a marketplace outside of the temple. They were setting up in the temple grounds. And where they were setting up was in the court of the Gentiles, the only place in the entire area of the temple where Gentiles who believed in the one God could come and pray in peace. And there was no peace. It was a noisy market. And Jesus came in. You could not bring in swords or clubs or anything like that in the temple. So Jesus came in and he plated himself a whip. He made himself a whip of cords or of reeds. And he put them together and he used that to make his point. I don't think he was going around beating people with it. I think he was going around to crack it and to get some people's attention. And maybe he might have smacked one or two who... Uh, refused to get the point. The main thing, though, is it wasn't the whip that drove them out. It was his voice. It was his voice and what he told them. And he said, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered Psalm 69.9, where the descendant of David, of the descendant of David, it was, it was spoken, Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, it provoked a reaction. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? You come in here, you start acting like the Messiah. Show us a sign that proves that you're the Messiah. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The word for temple he uses is not merely the word for the building of the temple. It is the word for a sanctuary, a holy place. It's... Uh, and it, the one that's used for the, for the actual building of the temple, it's never used as a metaphor. But this word that he uses is used as a metaphor. Destroy this holy place, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, let's answer a couple of questions that are bound to come up. The question is, is this the same cleansing of the temple that is spoken of in Matthew and Mark? Mark has a... Uh, of Matthew and Mark, Mark has a more detailed story, but John's is even more detailed than Mark's. But the interesting thing is, those details don't match up. 
there's a completely different set of details about what's going on here. But the biggest thing is, Matthew and Mark put the cleansing of the temple that they write about in the last week of Jesus' ministry, after he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The day after that, he comes into the temple and he begins to drive out the money changers. It doesn't tell you anything about a, a whip of cords or anything like that. It just speaks of him coming in and turning over tables. And it does speak of money changers and so forth, but he also cites a different reason. He, he cites a prophecy from Isaiah it shall, uh, a word from Isaiah, it is written, my, father's, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's a, bit easy, it's a bit more harsh than these words that are recorded in the Gospel of John, to be sure. Well, is it just a difference of details? And, it, and is John taking this story that took place at the end of Jesus' ministry and putting it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry? There are those, uh, there are many good scholars believing sound righteous Bible scholars who believe that that is exactly what John has done, that John has taken an event from the end of Jesus' ministry and placed it here at the beginning because it fits the theme that he is building. Um, I do not agree with that. Um, I have, uh, I've, I've taken that argument very seriously and I've thought through it, but I've also thought through the argument uh, from the other side that there were two cleansings of the temple that John tells us of the first one and that Matthew and Mark tell us of the one at the end of his ministry it's perfectly logical that it would happen that way first of all because uh, <laughs> you know what human nature is just because you get corrected one time doesn't mean that you're going to stay corrected and people always move back to the same old habits that they like to do. And by the way, it would be completely within the character of the rebellious nature of the people to whom Jesus was ministering, that that would be exactly the case, that they would just go back to their own habits, their old way of doing things. And so he would have to come in a second time and maybe uh, even with a, a little more harshness to make his point known. But also there's this. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. The temple began to be built in the days of Herod the Great about the year 18 BC. The temple proper, the temple itself, took about two years to build. But the rest of the temple was still under construction. The, the, the larger temple plaza and the great structures and edifice of the temple. As a matter of fact, every year that they would go back to the Passover, they'd see new things being built, new things going up. And the temple was actually under construction until the year before the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. So their temple was still under construction. So they, the, the Jews answered them, said, it's, it's taken 46 years to build the temple to this point. And you're going to take it, you're going to tear it down, build it in three days? So they're taking him literally. It's something that is a parable, a cryptic statement, a parable. That he's saying, by the way, specifically to hide its meaning from them because they do not believe. 
it says 46 years. So 46 years from the beginning of the temple around 18 BC, that would put the date at AD 27. The earliest likely date for the crucifixion of Jesus is AD 30. Clearly, John intends to tell us that this event took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it explains to us the beginnings of the hostility of those who are in Jerusalem toward the ministry of Jesus, so much so that they are sending scribes from Jerusalem to Galilee to follow Jesus around and to try to keep him from having too much influence and to question him and to uh, basically to pester him. So for their, so yes, I do believe that there were two cleansings of the temple. This is the first one and Matthew and Mark tell us of the second one. So his disciples after he was raised from the dead remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. By the way, it was these words which are not recorded specifically in Matthew, Mark, or Luke that become the major charge under which Jesus is convicted of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. You can look that up. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember John told us, I'm not even going to try to tell you all the signs that Jesus performed. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So now John is telling us that Jesus, we can know that Jesus is the, is the Christ the Son of God, because He knows only, He knows what only the Son of God would know, which is what is in the heart of man. There's an interesting play of words here. Many believed in His name. On that first lesson that we had on the Gospel of John, I pointed out to you that the the primary word throughout this gospel is going to be the word, the verb to believe. He never, John never uses the noun faith, but he uses the verb, the same verb, to believe, about a hundred times in this gospel. And here it is, many believed in his name. They believed, but the, the tense of the verb that he uses, it's a one-time thing. They saw a work of power. They saw a sign that he had performed and they believed the sign. They believed in his name because he showed them a sign. But that's not the same thing as believing in order to have life in his name. There is, There are levels of belief. It's better to have to believe this much than not to believe at all. But this is not yet true saving faith. Jesus on his part did not literally says believe in them. 
They believed, on his, they believed in his name, but he did not believe in them because he knew all people and he needed nobody to tell him what was in them. He himself knew what was in them. So this brings me to the end of the study and I just want to raise this question to you. I'm sure that you believe in Jesus to some extent at least because you're watching this video you're engaging in this study you are interested in knowing more about the scriptures that's good but I'm wondering if your faith is saving faith I wonder if you have believed in him in order to actually have life in his name I pray for you and encourage you to continue to seek him and to believe in him more before signing off, I want to expand on the passage about Jesus cleansing the temple. John's account is distinct from that of the synoptics, describing an event that kicks off the ministry of Jesus as opposed to one that leads the week of his death. Now, throughout Christian history, the majority of commentators have had no problem allowing that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Now, liberal scholars are inveterately skeptical of the Gospels as history at all, but the idea that there was only one such cleansing and that John decided to insert it early has only in recent decades become what is probably the majority view among conservative scholars, a term that to me is surprising, quite unnecessary, and I believe wrong. And I'm not alone in this. There are a number of prominent conservative scholars, such as D.A. Carson, who have pushed back against this trend. One of those who agrees with me here is philosopher and Christian apologist Lydia McGrew. In her book, Eye of the Beholder, she makes a vigorous and robust defense of the historicity and integrity of the Gospel of John. She has a full discussion of this particular issue and engages with those who assert the one cleansing theory and excuse John for clearly displacing it chronologically by saying that he must have had some theological reason for doing so. McGrew has some interesting points to make in addition to what I've already made, and I'd like to share a little of that with you. She writes that those who suggest that John had a theological motive for moving the story of the temple cleansing never consider, quote, how improbable it is that John's early readers or hearers would have, A, assumed that there were not two temple cleansings, B, concluded that John's was that John's was the non-factual placement, and C, thought exactly like a modern biblical scholar in divining John's private theological intention. She goes on to quote D.A. Carson, who says, When interpreters of John who hold that the evangelist has moved the narrative here for theological reasons try to articulate those reasons, they neither agree with one another nor prove intrinsically convincing. But is it also improbable that Jesus performed two temple cleansings? Now, yes, there are similarities in the accounts between the synoptics and John, but there are also substantial differences besides the chronology, differences which do not appear between the three different synoptic accounts. McGrew writes, If we had strong independent reason to think that these were the same event, these differences could be combined in various ways into one event. But here, the evidence all points in the same direction 
opposed only by a scholarly prejudice against the occurrence of two generally similar events. She then offers a comparison to a contemporary scenario. She writes, I have stood in front of the same abortion clinic in my town holding the same type of sign on more than one occasion. People passing in cars have also thrown insults at those holding signs on more than one occasion. If one described the events at that general level, one might think that they were the same incident. If one author reported that one such vigil took place in November while another said that something like it took place in February, a clever critic might argue that one author had displaced the event. But that difference of date would be a hint that these were different occasions, and further details would confirm that conclusion further. It is hardly an artificial harmonization to suggest that Jesus protested in this way twice, separated by three years or more. If the sellers of merchandise returned to their previous activities after the first demonstration, as they no doubt would, and if Jesus were moved with zeal for his father's house later, just before his death, he might well have protested again in similar fashion. And she continues, Besides the insupportable statement that the two stories are too similar, another weak line of argument used against two temple cleansings is what I call a priori history. The critic decides ahead of time what would not have happened and uses his own perception of such matters to discount the positive testimony of an historical source close to the time. After picking apart the specifics of certain critics' arguments that it's just improbable that Jesus could have carried out what is described by John, McGrew concludes, A reasonable person, reading John, does not find himself spontaneously saying, Oh, this would never happen. He would have been arrested quicker, sooner. His ministry could not have continued that long after that early temple cleansing. John, like the synoptics, presents a believable picture of a tempestuous, bold, and canny rabbi whose popularity, chutzpah, and frequent movement allow him to get away with repeatedly frustrating the elites of his day until they finally manage to get hold of him, bring bogus charges against him, and have him executed. To say that the ministry arc that John narrates so plausibly would not have happened because of the propensities of municipal elites is rightly considered, forceless assertion. The arguments that Jesus did not cleanse the temple twice and therefore that John moved the cleansing are not cogent. Again, the title of the book is Eye of the Beholder by Lydia McGrew. I recommend it. Our next episode features the single most important passage on the subject of worship in the entire Bible, among other things. I hope you'll tune in. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.